Well, good morning, LifePoint. It is so good to be uh, with you this morning. Uh, I was sick for, man, a good week, and uh, it's always good to just be back and be healthy again and feel 100%, as uh, I'm sure you all can relate to that. But if you are visiting with us for the very first time, whether you're here in person or watching online, uh, we would love to connect with you. We have a gift for you that we would love to uh, give to you on your way out this morning, or uh, if you're watching online, uh, we'd love to send it in the mail to you as well. So just go ahead and text that word, uh, welcome to the number on the screen, 406-209-0314. It's also on the seat back in front of you as well. Uh, if you like to use your smartphone and QR codes, you can snap that QR code as well. We promise not to spam you uh, with all kinds of information. I keep getting Gmail uh, notifications. Your Gmail account is full. Uh, and uh, I've got too many emails that I don't delete. So if you're anything like me, uh, the spam emails are no fun, and we promise not to spam you with information. But so glad to have you. If you have a Bible, go to Revelation chapter 2. Uh, the scripture will be up on the screen here shortly for you to follow along with us as well. But as you're kind of turning there and getting settled in, let me start by asking you a question. And the question is this, what comes to mind when you think of the word holy? Uh, what do you think of, first and foremost, when you hear that word uh, holy this morning? That's not a, a term that we uh, use very often in our day-in, day-out conversations. You probably don't use the word holy very much uh, throughout the week at work or in conversations with other people, and there's probably a good reason for that. There's not much in our world that is holy, amen? Uh, there's not much in our world that we would ascribe the term holy to? Who deserves such a title of holiness? Of course, we're in church, and so we're all going to say God, right? The correct answer uh, is Jesus, is God. He alone is holy. Amen, church? Uh, he alone deserves to be ascribed that title because he embodies holiness, right? He is pure. He is just. He is without sin always. He is undefiled. God is holy. In fact, you find this all throughout Scripture. In, in the book of Psalms, you find this often, Psalm 99.9. The psalmist says this, that, that exalt the Lord our God. And that's what we're doing this morning, is that we would come and worship week after week and exalt the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. God is holy. Amen, church? We serve a holy God. Uh, and that's really basic to Christianity. If you've been in church in uh, any amount of time, you probably know that that's pretty common to Christianity. We serve and worship the one and true and only holy God this morning, who is completely pure, completely sinless. He is completely just. He is always good, no matter our circumstances in life. And I think you would agree with that this morning. You probably would say, yeah, I'm on board with that. I agree with that statement. God is holy. We serve a holy God. But let me ask you a personal question this morning. Would you consider yourself to be holy? Uh, as you come here this morning into this place, would you say, yes, I am holy? Would you consider yourself to be holy today. We kind of balk at that idea, don't we? Now, most of us in this room would probably say, no, I do not consider myself or feel uh, as if I am holy. Labeling ourselves as holy uh, doesn't feel right, and maybe rightly so, because there's nothing holy in and of ourselves apart from Jesus, right? Uh, scripture at its foundation teaches that humanity has no righteousness within us. There is no holiness within us apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus alone 
makes you and I holy in God's sight. And so we don't typically think of ourselves as being holy or think of ourselves in, in that light. And really, nor should we consider ourselves to be holy apart from Jesus Christ. But does that mean that holiness doesn't matter? Uh, does that reality mean that holiness in my pursuit, your pursuit, our collective pursuit as a church of being holy, does that mean that holiness is not important if we're not naturally holy? Is your pursuit of holiness today, does it matter? Uh, does it matter that the modern church today in a corrupt, unholy world exemplifies the holiness of God? Should we be pursuing God's holiness? You likely already know the answer to that question this morning. And the answer, of course, is yes. That you and I are actually called to live a holy life. We're called to pursue holiness in all our conduct, in everything we do when you go to work on Monday morning or go to your office and your computer at work and do your Zoom calls or whatever you do in life, you and I are called to be holy. Let me show you just a few examples of that this morning. I know you likely already know this, but, but I want you to know uh, that it relates to what we're going to see in Revelation chapter number two this morning, this idea of holiness. Are we supposed to be pursuing holiness today? Should you and I be living a holy life? Let me give you just a few thoughts to consider and write down and maybe study for yourself later on. In Ephesians chapter 1, very familiar portion of Scripture, Paul, the apostle, speaking to a collective body of Christians. He says this in Ephesians chapter 1 in verses 3 through 4. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. You're blessed this morning, Christian, in Jesus in your relationship with him, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then notice verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should what? Be holy and blameless before him in love. Paul makes it pretty clear that you and I are, guess what? We're to live a holy life. The expectation, the goal, the, the, the thing that we should be pursuing in life is to be holy like our God. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27. I'll give you just two more this morning, then we'll move on. He says this in verse 27, so that he, God, might present the church. Is the church this building? No, right? The church is you and I. We are the church as God's people. And, And so he says the church, he might present the church, you and I, to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. All throughout Scripture, the church is is personified as the bride of Christ. When you think of your wedding day gals in in that gown and that dress and that white dress that you wore was was a picture of purity and holiness presenting yourself uh, to your soon-to-be husband. The church is the same. God says, I want my bride to be holy and to be just. We are the bride of Christ. Here's one more, and it's probably a very familiar passage to many of you this morning. First Peter chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. Peter says this, but as he who called you is holy, God is holy, right? As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so, 
to answer the question, are you and I to be pursuing a life of holiness? If you're a Christian this morning, you have a relationship, there's been that moment where you've seen the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for your sins. He paid the price for you. And you said, yes, I want that. I need that. And you accepted Christ. Guess what? God expects that you and I pursue his holiness. Holiness is to be the pursuit of our lives. But here's the problem. Here's the problem, is that holiness is often and easily excused in our lives, isn't it? You see, I asked you at the very beginning, what comes to mind? You think about holiness. Most of us, we don't give any consideration, any thought in our lives, in our day, in our week, in our year, to the idea of holiness. Holiness is often the last thing we think of. We don't give a whole lot of thought. We don't give a whole lot of attention often in our lives to becoming holy like our Lord. If we're honest with ourselves, and we're in church, right? So we ought to be honest this morning. If we're honest with ourselves, most of us would probably say this, including myself, I haven't pursued holiness like I should have that I'm often not considering being holy like my Lord and pursuing his holiness. I'm not pursuing the holiness of God like I should. It's not that important to me. Most of us, if we're honest, we would say, I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about, caring about, considering being holy. And here's why. Here's why. Tolerating sin is way easier, isn't it? Sin is the thing that is so much more natural in our lives, and so it's so much easier to tolerate it, excuse it, give in to it. We say, holiness is just too hard. It's too exhausting. It's maybe too unattainable. I can never be holy like God, we say, so why try? You ever thought that, said that, heard someone say that before? Well, I want you to know this morning that that line of thinking became so prevalent in the first century, uh, this idea that holiness is just something that, you know, we can't ever attain to. Sin is just so natural. It's so easy to tolerate it, excuse it, give into it in our lives. And so why even pursue holiness? You know what? I think God's grace just covers it all. So let's just give in to our sin. That idea became so prevalent in the first century, and I want you to know it was present in one of the seven churches that we're going to look at this morning in Revelation chapter 2. This was a church, hear me, this morning that was focusing, stopped focusing, excuse me, on the holiness of God, and it's important in their lives. It became a byproduct, an afterthought. Holiness was no longer important to them. And so here's the bottom line. If you're new to LifePoint this morning, we have one main thought, not many points, just one main thing that we want you to remember and to key in on, and that is simply this, is that when you and I stop pursuing holiness, what follows in our life is natural, and it's this, it's the idea of corruption. Mark it down, know it. Whenever you and I stop pursuing holiness, corruption is soon to follow. When you and I stop making holiness the goal of our life, the pursuit of our life, in all that we do day in and day out, corruption soon follows. We fall back, don't we, into our own ways. And many of you probably can relate to that this morning. 
You know what it's like. I know what it's like to fall back into old ways, old sin habits in my life, things that I used to do, old sin patterns. And the reason for that is holiness wasn't that important to me. I didn't pursue it like I used to pursue it. And we often wonder why. How in the world did I ever get to this place? You ever wonder that? How did I get here? How did I get so far away? How did I go back to those moments in my life? Right? was so given to this sin or sins in life. When holiness isn't that important to you, you know it becomes easy to fall into corruption and temptation in life. And everyone here this morning is prone to that. Everyone watching online, man, you, are, you and I are prone. We have that tendency to do that. When we stop making holiness the pursuit of our lives, we fall back into old habits, old ways. And that's why Paul in Colossians chapter 3 said, set your minds And that setting of your minds is a continual habit daily. Today, I'm going to set my mind, my heart, my thoughts on things that are above, on holy things, not on earthly, fleshly things. Because if I do, the moment I do, I know what happens. Corruption begins to invade my heart and my life. Well, you might be asking, how in the world does this relate to the book of Revelation in the seven churches today. Well, if you're new to LifePoint, we've been in the book of Revelation over the, the past few weeks, and we're studying the seven churches, the seven letters to these seven churches in Asia Minor. And we've talked about the church at Ephesus, and the church at Smyrna, and the church at Pergamum. Uh, and these are all churches that uh, are kind of interrelated in a way. Ephesus was kind of the, the church center, the, the church that kind of started it all, and other churches began to form and and start based on this one church. And and Jesus has something to say to these churches. He has something to say to every single church in modern America, in our world today. And he has not only some commendation, but he has some things that he would say, man, there's some, some things I'm not pleased with. And there's some things that I cannot turn a blind eye to. And the next church that we're gonna look at this morning is the church at Thyatira. Thyatira. In the church at Thyatira became a church that not only compromised like the church at Pergamum, if you remember from a few weeks ago, this was a church in, in Pergamos that, that allowed corruption to come in. It was, it was similar to that, but this, this church in Thyatira took it to a whole new level. Not only were they allowing corruption, but they were actually propagating it from the pulpit. They were actually condoning sin within the body of Christ. And you might ask, how in the world does that happen? Right? Like, like how in the world does a church begin to say sin is okay? Do whatever you want. God doesn't care. You can't be holy. How does a church begin to encourage people to, to sin? Well, listen, it happens when holiness becomes less and less and less important to you and to me and to us collectively it happens when we stop pursuing and believing that our holiness matters to the Lord. And when that happens, corruption soon follows. You can count on it. So let's look at our text this morning. And it's a rather long passage of Scripture. It's, it's the longest letter to any of the churches. And you can imagine why. I mean, if the church is given to sin and propagating sin, you would imagine that Jesus, of course, has something to say to this church, and he does. And so let's Read it together in Revelation chapter 2 and verses 18 
through 29, where it says this, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira, the angel, of course, is the messenger of that church, and these are the words of Jesus, speaking to John to write these things down and send these words to these churches. And Jesus says the words of the Son of God, this is his description of himself, who we saw in chapter number one, uh, John's description of what he saw of Jesus, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus says, I know your works, your love and your faith and the service that you give and patient, your patient endurance and that your latter works actually exceed the first. But I have this against you, verse 20, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. Verse 21, Jesus says, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I'll strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned that what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Boy, there is a lot going on in this passage of Scripture. We're not going to cover every detail here this morning. This is a very long letter. Uh, and in fact, it is the longest letter written to any of the seven churches. Uh, but what I am going to do this morning is I am going to give you the highlights and explain what is the issue. What is happening in this church? What are they facing collectively? And the issue I want you to know that they were facing uh, is not just something unique to them. Uh, it's not something that we would just kind of, you know, callously, you know, brush aside and say, well, wow, that, that would never happen here. That would never happen in uh, churches in America or in our world today. That would never happen in my life. I want you to know that it's not unique to them their circumstances might look a little bit different, but every church is prone. Every church is prone to condoning and allowing sin to creep into it. And I'll explain that here in just a moment. But notice first what Jesus says. Let's kind of walk through this for a little bit this morning. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 19. Notice it with me again. Jesus says, I know something. And re remember, we said that at the very beginning, Jesus sees his church. And, and, and if the church is not the building, it's the person, right? Jesus says, I know you, and I know your life, and I know everything about you. I know your thoughts and in your, your intents your, of your heart, your motivations. Jesus says, I know you. And he says, I know my church. And what he knows about this church in the city of Thyatira is this. He says, I know your works, and I know your love, and I know your faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. And I want you to know that this was actually an active church, that, that from the outside looking in, it was like, wow, this is like a thriving church, an active church. They're, they're, they're uh, involved in their community. They're loving. They're giving. It's possible that they're doing all sorts of things 
to reach people for Christ. And Jesus says, I know. I know. And I know that your latter works exceed the first, meaning this, that I know that you're actually growing that where you started is not where you're at now. And, and, and that is a true principle for all of us. Where we started when we came to faith in Christ, we shouldn't stop there. We should continue to grow. And this church was growing, and they were increasing in their efforts. And I want you to know that that was good. That was great. They, they were doing more and more and more. And like I've said in the past, when Jesus commends something, we ought to take notice, right? When Jesus says something is commendable, and this is good, your works, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, boy, do we need patient endurance in 2020. Amen, church? Jesus says that's commendable, and we ought to be about all of those things. But there's something, something very destructive going on in the church that cannot be overlooked or dismissed. And I want you to know that this is a body of believers, Christians, who became accustomed to dismissing and overlooking sin. Uh, this is a body of Christians who are maybe likely a lot like modern-day Christians today, where you see a lot of shallow Christianity. You just kind of go to church, and you kind of do your thing. But you know, the rest of the week, it's kind of a free-for-all. God doesn't care because I went to church on Sunday. I think they began to dismiss their sin, but know this, Jesus will not dismiss sin. Jesus won't ever turn a blind eye to the sin and the allowances that we make in our lives. He takes it very, very seriously. Why? Because he's a holy God, because he's just, and he's righteous. And you and I, guess what? We represent Jesus Christ to the world, and God wants nothing more than for the world to see the real Jesus in us, in the church. And so he says, be holy, be holy. And at this point, the church in Thyatira was anything but that. A church was doing a lot of good stuff, and Jesus commended them for that. But this church began to compromise their holiness. And so how did they do that? How did they do that? How were they compromising their holiness. Let me make that just a little personal this morning. How are you and I compromising our personal holiness? What are things in our lives that we're allowing and we're making allowances for that are compromising our holiness? Are there, are there things that you're doing and allowing in your life that are affecting your pursuit of holiness? Well, I want you to know this morning that in the church at Thyatira, it was sexual sins. Sexual sins were the things that were allowing this church to compromise in such an evil way. Notice in verse number 20, Jesus says this, hey, you got some commendable things, some wonderful things, and God would likely look at our church and look at our lives and say, hey, there's some commendable things, but there's some things that maybe I might be a little concerned about, and we ought to be open to that uh, piercing eye and watchful eye from the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would say, God, is there any sin in my life that's keeping me? from being holy. And Jesus says this, I have this against you. What a sobering, sobering phrase. I have this against you, that you as a church, you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed 
to idols. I want you to know this is like a new level of toleration. As you go through the book of Revelation in the first few chapters and you see these churches, there's kind of a level of progression as it increases. It's like in Ephesus, there's, you know, you just lost your love, man. The light is kind of burned out. And as you go further and further along, you find that the corruption and the sin and the issues get worse and worse and worse as it progresses. And remember, these seven churches are what? They're representative of modern church in some way. That Jesus says, like, this isn't just for first century churches. This isn't just for seven churches back in the first century. This is for my church to have an ear and to listen and to ponder and to consider that these issues transcend time. Here, corruption in the church rises to a new level. This church was allowing sin to be taught as permissible behavior. Uh, can you imagine that? Uh, that a church, that a pastor, that, 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 that leadership in the church would, would allow uh, such teaching uh, to be propagated from its pulpit, that it's not a big deal, that it's okay, that, hey, God says his grace, it covers sin, so we might as well just go ahead and do whatever we want. It doesn't really matter. They were essentially saying personal holiness your pursuit of holiness, it's not that important. Don't even give it a second thought. God knows that you can't be holy, so hey, why even try? And this thought in this church was inside. It came from within. There were pressures certainly from outside in the culture, and and you want to talk about sexualized culture. We think our uh, society today is sexualized. Man, look in the first century and the things that were going on in pagan cities, and they mix sexuality with religion. You want to talk about a sexualized culture and the pressures uh, that Christians were facing in that day and age. They were absolutely huge, but this began to be taught within the church. And Jesus says there's a woman who calls herself a prophetess. And I want you to know this is how uh, she is describing herself. Jesus is like, I'm not giving her that title. She has not been given that authority, given that title within the church. She has given it to herself. And Jesus says she is a Jezebel. She is like Jezebel. That's probably not her name. In fact, most commentators uh, believe that that wasn't her real name. It's just the name that Jesus ascribes to her because it's her character. It's her character. Uh, If you are familiar with the Jezebel of the Old Testament, you're familiar uh, with the story of Ahab. And and Ahab was the king of Israel, and Jezebel uh, was his his wife. And and she caused the nation of Israel to begin to worship this false god called Baal. And it was a very sexualized religion as well, but Jezebel was actually responsible ultimately for Baal worship. We read in 1 Kings, we give you just one example, 1 Kings 21, 25. Uh, it says, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab. Like, you want to find a wicked king in Israel? Look no further than Ahab. But notice what it says. It says, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. This woman was the cause of the immorality within the nation of Israel. She was a pretty evil woman, if you recall, and, and, and read her story. In fact, she even had a man killed just so that her husband could, could take ownership of his extensive garden. So the name Jezebel in and of itself carries with it a very evil connotation. Anybody know 
someone whose daughter is named Jezebel? Like, seriously, like, anybody know? You're like crickets, right? Like, nobody calls their daughter Jezebel. What's your daughter's name? Oh, Jezebel. Oh, how sweet. <laughs> uh, probably not, right? Why? To be a Jezebel meant that you were inciting others to evil. And I want you to know that's what's happening here in the church at Thyatira. This woman was teaching, seducing other Christians within the church to practice and to give in to sexual immorality, to eat foods, sacrifice uh, to idols, saying, it's okay, Uh, we have license, we have freedom, we can do whatever we want. And apparently it worked because the large majority of the Christians within that church bought into it. They began to trade their holiness for corruption. They made excuses They made exceptions. They said sin isn't wrong, it's just natural. And I want you to know that idea is still present today. We live in a society that says sin is subjective, don't we? We live in a society today that actually celebrates sin, does not celebrate holiness, but upholds and uplifts sin in our society. And the rampant sin in Thyatira was actually going to bring judgment from Christ soon unless they repented. But here's why it became such a problem. I think it's natural for us to sit in the church and to think, oh my goodness, they're so evil, right? It's real easy to become self-righteous and think, how could they sin on such a gross level? How could they condone sin in their lives? We, as Christians, become so very self-righteous. We condone sin in our own lives, but we judge others for the sin in their lives. How, how could a church fall to such things? Well, to answer that question, we need to look a little deeper, and we need to understand what was happening within their culture, and I want to give you just a little bit of a, of a history lesson. What are the pressures? What were the things that were causing them to give in to this kind of temptation in their church? Well, Thyatira was actually one of the most uh, insignificant cities within the region. Of all the seven churches that we're going to look at, Thyatira was pretty insignificant. It was a, a, a small city uh, in this region, and it became primarily known for its textile industry. In fact, they were experts at dyeing fabric in Thyatira. And in fact, if you read Acts chapter 16, you might be familiar with a lady by the name of Lydia. She is a seller of purple, and guess where she's from? Thyatira. Uh, she comes to know the Lord, and uh, not only does she come to faith in Christ, but her whole household comes to faith in Christ. And it's possible that the church in Thyatira was started because of Lydia. So interesting story there, but this is what the city is known for. They, they dyed fabric. In fact, they had a, a, a root that grew in this region, and they harvested that root, and they used it uh, to dye uh, fabric, specifically purple. Uh, Lydia was known as a seller of purple. Uh, and, and so it came from this root. It also came from a shellfish, which is kind of interesting, but they primarily used this root. And so Thyatira, unlike other cities in the region, became much more known as a business center than a religious center. Uh, Most of the other cities were just places of worship or places of education. Thyatira was known primarily as a business center. Uh, But one other important characteristic 
And this is actually really, really fascinating if you study archaeology and you read about the history of such places. Historians have actually discovered something unique about this Asian city that is unlike any other Asian city in the region, and that is this, Thyatira was known most for its trade guilds. Trade guilds. Raise your hand if you're familiar with that phrase, trade guilds. Uh, Raise your hand if you're familiar with the phrase labor unions. Labor unions, anybody, anybody? Yeah, a few people, right? Familiar with that phrase. Well, trade guilds were uh, very similar to labor unions. One commentator said this, the foremost archaeological findings at Thautira are inscriptions. This is fascinating. Inscriptions describing the trade guilds. And so to be a part of a trade guild, a, a labor union in this region was very, very common. He went on to say this, these guilds were multiple and diverse in nature. Various occupations had separate guilds. And so there were guilds for coppersmiths and guilds for builders and plumbers and uh, uh, people in the textile industry. Whatever industry you were part of, guess what? There was a trade guild uh, associated with that. Uh, And so they're basically these labor unions, and every trade had uh, a guild for those craftsmen. But here's the thing. You didn't succeed in Thautira if you weren't a part of a trade guild. If you wanted to succeed, you wanted to move your business forward, you wanted to make money and more of it, just like the world always does, our fascination with money. You had to be a part of a trade guild. You had to be associated with the guild of your trade. That makes sense, right? And most of us wouldn't even balk at that. We say, like, you know, if you've ever had a job and you had to join a labor union before, maybe you're part of a labor union, like, you know, like, the benefits, and sometimes there's uh, uh, negativities, you know, associated with it as well. I remember when I was in college, uh, there was a company I began to work for, and they said, if you want to work for us, you got to join the labor union. I'm like, 18. I'm like, I have no idea. Like, labor union? Why do I got to do this? I got to pay them dues? Like, you know, I'm like, you're taking more money out of my check, you know, to be a part of this? But it makes sense to us, doesn't it? But here's the problem. And this became such a huge problem within uh, the city for these Christians and for those that were part of a trade guild because many people are coming to faith in Christ and, and they're part of these guilds. They're craftsmen. They have some sort of job and they're, they know that, that the, the importance of being a part of a guild in order to put food on the table, what began to happen in these trade guilds and what went on in their meetings was gross sexual license. And every time these trade guilds began to meet, the feasts that they had, the orgies, the, uh, the eating uh, foods that were awful, offered to idols, the worship to a false god, they said, if you want to be a part of the trade guild, you got to be part of everything in the trade guild. And so you can see the tension that that must have been for Christians, if, like if you want to get ahead, right? You want to climb the ladder. You want to be successful. You want to make money. You have got to be part of the trade guild, and you've got to be a part of everything in the trade guild. And many of these Christians were torn. What do we do? I've got to put a roof over my head. I've got to put food on the table. I've got to maintain the lifestyle that we, we have and we love. And, and all of these things, the tension for these Christians, their livelihood is at stake. And so now you can understand maybe the difficult temptation that they were in, and some within the church began to say this. You know, it's just kind of a necessary evil. 
I don't like it. Yeah, you probably don't like it either. But, you know, business is business. And, and it's, you know, it's just a small thing for you to do in order to have the success and the money and the things. You want to continue to have all the things you have and the freedoms and all these things in life? Just compromise a little bit, and you'll have what you want to have. And so people in the church began to say, nah, holiness is hard. Can we all agree with that? Being holy is hard. It takes work. It takes effort. It takes every day waking up and setting our minds and looking unto Jesus every single moment. I don't know about you, but the moments that I don't look to Jesus, the moments I look to what the flesh wants to do. Holiness is hard. And I think for a lot of Christians in that church, they said the same thing, holiness is hard. And so the teaching and the idea began to rise up within that church. Hey, it's okay. You're a part of a trade guild. What happens in business stays in business. It's not the same. Holiness only applies when you come to church. We kind of laugh at that. But it's often, often the one thing that we do. We go about our days, we go about our business, and we say holiness doesn't apply here. But yet holiness is something that should impact everything. You see, it's not just coming to church or it's not just being a missionary and going out like if we do all these outreach activities. No, we're, we're to be holy in everything we do so that the world might see Jesus and the hope of a Savior and the hope of being freed from the corruption of sin and the condemnation of sin. It's through our holiness that people see Jesus in us. And this church began to diminish that. And guess what happened? Corruption ensued. Holiness was no longer important. And maybe you can relate to that this morning. Maybe you're here and you're like, you know what? 2020 has not been a focused holiness year in my life. <laughs> you know, and Satan is really smart, isn't he? Like he knows what he's doing. He knows how to move our focus on to other things. And maybe you're here and you would say, uh, this year has not been a year that I have increased and focused and leaned into the holiness of God, maybe you've allowed some sin to creep into your life and you're excusing it. Maybe you're saying, it's just too hard. And so why even try? Friend, let me tell you this morning, when you begin to make those small compromises, when you begin to look at your life and you say, holiness really isn't that important, I don't need to give it a, a second thought, know that corruption is soon behind you that the temptation is always going to be there to sin and to fall. And when you're not pursuing God's holiness, we fall so easily. But as Jesus does with this church and with this woman in particular here, he does with us as well. Remember, I've said in the past, whenever you open the scriptures, we're looking for the character of God. We're looking to see what is God like? Who is he? When we open the pages of scripture, God is wanting to reveal his character. And he says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent. No, that God through his grace and his mercy always gives time to repent. You know, sometimes we sin and we say, oh, nothing happened. <laughs> I wasn't struck dead. And we go on and on and on and no consequences come. You know what that is? That's God giving you and I time to repent of our sin. And God does that here with this woman. I gave her time, but she refused. 
And God is always willing to do that. That's part of his character. That's who he is. His grace and his forgiveness is abundant. But if we refuse that, if we refuse that, guess what happens? Judgment happens. Consequences happen. No, that God will not turn a blind eye to your sin, my sin, or our sin. You can read for yourself Revelation 2, verses 22 through 23, in the sobering reality of what Christ was willing to do in order to wake up his church. But he says something uh, so very sobering, and he says, I will give to each of you according to your works. Friend, this morning, listen to me. Holiness matters. Your personal holiness in pursuit of holiness it matters. And it doesn't just matter to you and your family, your kids, your, your spouse, and the people around you. Listen, it matters to this church. What would God see if he wrote a letter today and said, I see you, I know you? Would he see personal holiness? Let me leave you just with one last verse, and that is Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, where the Apostle Paul says this, and I think this applies so very well. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, uh, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, we could say whatever is holy, amen? Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. You may say this morning, Pastor John, how in the world do I pursue holiness? It starts here in our thinking, in our minds. The things that we obsess about, we've become so obsessed about mass and vaccines and politics and all these other issues. And I'm not saying they're not important. They are. But the most important thing, the thing that rises to the top of everything is the gospel. That people without Jesus, mask or no mask, vaccine or no vaccine, political view like our view, doesn't matter. They don't have Jesus. And church, if we're not holy, if we're just like the world, if we're compromising, and we're living a life that says, oh, it doesn't matter. Do whatever you want. They won't see Jesus in us. They won't see his holiness, the beauty of living in freedom of our sin, that we don't have to be held captive to sin anymore. Jesus says, I want them to be set free. Guess who he wants to use? The bride of Christ, who is pure and holy and just and exemplifies my character. Will we be perfect? Oh my goodness, no. But will we strive and all we do to say, this is a holy God. And we want you to know him. And we want you to experience the same grace and forgiveness and peace of walking with a holy God. Church, would you stand with me just for a moment? There's a moment we call invitation. 
an, an invitation from God, a, a moment that God says, I'm giving you space today. Isn't it wonderful that week after week, we can align our hearts with scripture. And God says, I'm giving you space. I'm giving you time. I'm giving you moments in your life that you would recognize me in my voice, in my speaking, in my conviction. Not because I hate you and I want your life to be hard and difficult, but because I love you. And I want you to experience what it's like to walk in holiness. Man, there is peace. There is peace in knowing and following Jesus. There is peace in knowing that the habit of sin does not have its grip on me. That the habit of sin is not the thing that constantly, that guilt and that condemnation that I constantly feel in life. There's peace in holiness. And God says, I want you to be holy. Don't forsake holiness, church. Because when you do, when I do, when we do, corruption will follow. Corruption will follow. God, today, forgive us. God, forgive us of the moments that we have forsaken your holiness. We've forgotten your holiness. God, may we be students of your holiness and your character. God, may we not come off as self-righteous people who think we have it all together and have it all right. We don't. We have no holiness apart from you. But may we learn what it means to be holy as you are holy, that we might represent you well, that we might show the world who you are, the one true God who sets us free from sin. God, we worship you. We pray, God, that we would leave this place and not just be hearers of your word, but may we be doers. May we seek ways, God, to learn and know your holiness, may it be the pursuit of this church, that you might look upon us, God. We know that you won't see perfection, but may you see a body of believers that are pursuing just to be like you. May we represent you well as we walk out of these doors today. We love you, we praise you, we worship you. In Christ's precious name we pray, amen. God bless you, church. Thanks so much for being here. We'll see you next Sunday.